Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. My father was an immigrant from the Philippines, and I don't know about your immigrant, perhaps Filipino father, but my dad wasn't much for words. He didn't really talk much to anyone, but one of the important lessons he taught me, and he taught me this through his actions, how he behaved, is that some days, some moments are more important than others. Today's moment, the Cleveland Summit, is more important. It's more important than this podcast for sure. And there are more important people who can tell the story behind it. To that end, and without further ado, this is a special first ballot. Welcome to First Ballot, the podcast that celebrates the moments in sports that really matter and decides whether they're good enough to be inducted into the First Ballot Hall of Fame. I am your host, Neil, a.k.a. Gotham Coach, the podcast Jordan Clarkson, half Filipino, half Austin Reeves, coming to you live from the Shaquille O'Neal Office Depot, big and tall executive suite, captain's desk chair in top grain black leather. Today's show is brought to you by... The Ball is Life Podcast Network. We're proud to be a part of the family. If you really love basketball, it's really in your bones. You have to follow Ball is Life on all major social platforms. Ball really is life to those folks. Let me tell you, they'll keep you in the know. They'll give you all the updates you need all year long. Plus, you'll get the best online basketball content sent right to your phone. Also, check out some other shows on the Ball is Life Podcast Network. Proud to be there. Today's episode of the First Ballot Hall of Fame podcast could be sponsored by and by the by, now that we're on the Balls Lab Podcast Network, dear advertisers, the portion of this show could be very, very real, but for now it's not. Today's episode of the First Ballot Hall of Fame podcast could be sponsored by the very beginning of the song Flashlight by Parliament Funkadelic. Just the beginning of the song, though. You want to hear it? Let's listen to it right now. Oh, my God. That's all you get. You get one flashlight, goddammit. Just the beginning of that song. This whole this whole podcast could be sponsored by just the beginning of that song. It's really funny how some music, you just, you know it right away. You can feel it. You can feel that song in your bones. It's just tremendous music. Uh, I'll never get tired of talking about music. It's truly the real magic. It's real magic in our everyday lives. Music, fantastic. Anyways, if you like the beginning of that song, Flashlight, go listen to the rest. Today's guest once tweeted, 
quote, there are better songs, but nothing slaps harder than Flashlight. <laughs> you are goddamn right about that. Flashlight by Parliament Funkadelic, available wherever you listen to your favorite music. You won't be Parliament Funkadelic. The next one you got to pay for. This moment, the moment we're covering today on today's episode is very important to say the least. But is it a first ballot Hall of Famer? That's what we need to decide. Our moment today, it's called the Cleveland Summit, and you're going to learn all about it. But why would you want to learn that from me, from Neil? It'd be so much better if you got to learn about this impossibly uh, monumental moment from a brilliant, funny, entertaining black historian and writer. Well, that's who we have today. He was a senior staff writer at The Root and is now a columnist at thegrio.com. His writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Ebony Magazine, The Guardian, and more. Plus, he's the author of two books, The Situation in South Carolina and the soon-to-be-released Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. He's also written for your TV screens including the cross connection on MSNBC and the Amber Ruffin show on Peacock. Lastly, he's been the host of the Webby nominated, the Grio daily podcast. And now he's the host of a brand new exciting podcast called drape domaniacs, unshackled history from Pharrell's other tone and Sony music entertainment. If you'll bear with me for just a moment, the pie, I usually like the, you know, the intros, I want them to crescendo to my intro, but I need a moment. The podcast space is overrun. There's just too many of them. And the, uh, the God's honest truth is that might also include this show. Maybe the show is not necessary. We're going to find out. But the, the point is there's just too many podcasts. And honestly, I can't blame anybody for starting one. The barrier to entry is low, but the payout can be very high, particularly creatively. If you own this thing, if it's yours, you get to make your own decisions. It's high, so I don't blame anyone for starting a podcast, but there are too many. Every once in a while, you hear one, and it it breaks through, and you listen to an episode, you get a recommendation, you listen to an episode, you hear the thing, it's funny, it makes you think, it's entertaining, you start talking to your, your spouse or your partner, whoever it is about it, you tell them to listen to it, you think about the host, you follow the host on social and you go, this is it. This is special. This thing matters. And this is what the podcast space can be. That to me is what Drape Demaniacs is. And it's hosted by our guest here today. He's a board certified white apologist. He's the Dean of Black Twitter's history department. It's Mr. Michael Harriet. Michael, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, man. That's quite an introduction. I'm kind of impressed with myself. I didn't even know I did all that stuff. You should be. You should be. I hope you feel that way. And I hope that I say this a lot and it's because it's the truth. You like, I, you know, you're, you're just making the donuts. You're going to work every day. You got to do what you got to do for your family whatever the situation might be. I look at you and I go, this guy is impressive. Like I'm like extra preparing. I'm watching more. I'm reading more for this episode. Cause I'm like, I gotta not sound like an idiot on this episode here today. It's very important to me that I do not come off as an idiot because I look at you and go, this guy, this is an impressive body of work. And I hope that you take a moment today to sort of appreciate that. That is how we see you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's if you don't mind, I'd love to dra- jump right into Drape the Maniacs. Um, can you tell everybody now? I, I listened to the two episodes that, as of this recording, the two episodes that are out now. Uh, I loved it. 
Can you tell us about the title of the show, the root word and where that comes from? So in 1851, a doctor named Samuel Adolphus Cartwright uh, from New Orleans, he wrote an article for the New Orleans Medical Journal, and he outlined a discover- his so-called discovery of a mental illness called drapetomania, the disease that caused slaves to run away, disease that caused Black people to have this mania that made them want to be free. The root word is from draptos, which is a Greek word that means an escaped slave. And uh, people, it was a medical term until the 1920s. It was in, you know, medical literature. and, And you can see throughout history, you'll see physicians referring to it as a real thing. Like, like those people were affected by, even after slavery was gone. And so, uh, right. so I, I wanted to take the idea, right, and move it forward. Like, because mm. in a sense, it's still true. Like, we think of people's desire yes. for freedom and equality as some kind of a mental illness or that, that something must be wrong with that person. And when it's normal right. to others. And so I wanted to kind of take that and use it to describe and tell stories from Black history. And not like in a boring, in 1960s too, this is what happened, but to make it funny. So I always describe it as like, imagine if the Chappelle show was your history teacher. And so that's what it is. We dramatize, dramatize it. We, we get celebrities in to do the voices. And it's a funny irreverent take on history, but it is well-researched and it is stories that people probably might not have heard before. hundred percent. It's, it's, it's really, I can't recommend it enough. It I'm again, I've, I've listened to two episodes of this recording and I just was like, this feels like something that every time I listen to an episode, I'm going to learn something that's going to deepen my appreciation of things. That's going to be information that I'm going to be excited to share as though I'm some, you know, form of expert on the subject. I, I, it's funny how a title matters to me when a title is as good as yours, it is a giant sign that the, I mean, how, when the title's this good, can you imagine how good the rest of the podcast is? If you haven't listened to it, go listen to, to it on wherever you listen to your favorite podcast available everywhere. Draped Maniacs. Uh, fantastic. In a, in a way, you know, I talked about, um, flashlight, like you get, you, you hear flashlight and you listen to it and like right away you go, God damn, this song is going to cook. Like you can just tell out of the gate. And that when I heard draped to maniacs, then the episode starts and I hear that backstory on draped to mania. And I go, that is a brilliant title. It speaks to today. It works. It's taking the word. Ah, I just thought it was so brilliant. It's fantastic. Congratulations on the show so far. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. I'm glad you enjoyed it. How good, by the way, is the song Flashlight by Parliament Funkadel? So I have, I have my daughter. She used to take a fencing. Uh, she used to be a fencer, like a world rank fencer. And uh, when I used to have to drive her to fencing classes, I remember her saying, like, hey, what's that song? Like, she never asked me. Like, she'd listen to it. She had no choice. But <laughs> that was the first t- song she ever asked. Like, what is the name of that song? 
And that's how good it is. It's one of those songs like it does. You don't have to be into that type of music right. or that type of like it's not old school. Right. It's it's still futuristic now, right? And and yes. that's how good it is. Uh, I'm, everything I have, the everything I bring up today, I just find myself leaning on my hand and listening to you talk. Very excited to hear you uh, go on about this moment. Uh, before we dive in, Michael, here at the show, we firmly believe. What you like says a lot about you. Like the movie High Fidelity, it's what you like, not what you are like. Can we table set for a moment? What's your favorite sport, your favorite team, and your favorite athlete of all time? That will tell us a lot about you. So my favorite sport is football. And if we have to get really specific, it's probably going to be college football uh, because I just grew up Got it. Uh just loving college football and like it's the kind of like college football is all passion you don't get paid and it's not like high school football where you know it's the the best athletes or the biggest guy in school it is all of the elements of football doing it for the love and then it's the fast the passion of the fans like i went to auburn university so i still like for some reason believe that we're gonna this is gonna be a good year next year um, <laughs> and so and but i've been you know in the stands and a part of so many games the kick six uh game i was there oh amazing my favorite uh my favorite team in college football is, is the uh is the auburn tigers which you know is natural i'm a, a auburn grad i went to school there i've been there for so many teams, I uh, successfully brainwashed my son to be a, a Auburn Tiger and an Auburn Tiger fan. <laughs> my daughter, unfortunately, I failed, but uh, she's been to games. And my favorite athlete of all time is is Muhammad Ali. I think he is the epitome of a great man and the great athlete. Uh, with Bill Russell as one A. I, I, we're going to get into Bill Russell. You had some very interesting things to say about Bill Russell. I can't wait to get to them. Uh, all right, Michael, let's dive into our moment. I, at the top of every episode, I usually tell the story behind our moment to sort of give some context so everybody knows what we're discussing and debating. Since you are here in my head, I'm like, why the hell would I tell this story? We have you to add some real historical context. I've got kind of a timeline laid out. I'm going to walk through it. But if you have anything to add, please feel free. My God, who wants to hear from me when you're here? So let's do it. Perfect. Uh, the story, I'm honestly, like, I was like, where do I start? And I felt like I got to start all the way back and give some of the tent pole because it all matters. It like really crescendos here. The story of Muhammad Ali, it's just too big to sort of get into one podcast this is a timeline I think we can focus on for this episode. For the purposes of this show, two important things happened in 1954. Number one, some asshole stole a red Schwinn bicycle from a 12-year-old boy in Louisville, Kentucky. That 12-year-old's name at the time was Cassius Clay. Clay would eventually rename himself Muhammad Ali. As the story goes, Clay turned to boxing with the hopes of someday catching and quote whooping the person who stole his bike the other important thing that happened in 1954 the start of the united states official involvement in a conflict labeled the vietnam war 
six years later, 18-year-old Cassius Clay is in Rome for the 1960s Olympics. As a member of the United States boxing team, he wins gold against Poland's Zbigniew Piotrkowski. I tried very hard if you're Polish and I butchered that. I apologize. A few months later in 1960, Clay starts his professional career. About three and a half years later on February 24th, 1964, Cassius Clay is 19-0 with 14 knockouts, including nine out of his last 10 fights before February 24th, 1964. That's the night Clay is fighting mob hitman turned heavyweight champion of the world with a record of 35 and one 31 year old Sonny Liston. What do you remember about Sonny Liston, Michael? Anything? Uh, besides being a mob hitman, uh, <laughs> Sonny Liston, he was the because remember before Sonny Liston, boxing was kind of a skill and a brawler sport. Right. But Sonny Liston was the first guy who was like the it's weird because it's kind of the opposite of what you would think. Like if the heavyweight champions before Sonny Liston were kind of, you know, pugilists, they right. were, you know, uh, guys who had skill, but Sonny Liston was all tough, man. Yes. Right. He seemed unbeatable. Not only did he seem unbeatable, but people were kind of, like we think of, uh, of Muhammad Ali in a different way now than we think of him. Like he thought of like Bob Ali was kind of disliked. He was too mm-hmm. loud. You know, mm-hmm. that the loud thing, there were flashy boxes, but there was nobody as eloquent as him. He was too flashy and people wanted to see him get knocked out. Right. And he went in the ring with Sonny Liston and the thing you, I mean, you, have to remember about setting this is he was feared not feared. by other boxers <laughs> like he was feared he was feared walking down the street so this is gonna get off the <laughs> side right and, and this pretty slight flashy guy goes in and whips him absolutely uh sonny liston just for the background here, Floyd Patterson, world-class fighter, one of the greats of all time. He's the heavyweight champ at the time he faces Sonny Liston. Sonny knocks him out in the first round. And of course, at the time, and in the, I guess at the time because boxing wasn't as corrupted as it is certainly now, uh, everyone that loses or everyone that wins, they always take the rematch. So Liston knocks out Floyd Patterson, who's a an absolute pillar in the boxing in boxing history knocks him out in the first round they're like wait a minute we got to do a rematch Liston goes okay they fight again and Liston knocks him out in the first round again (laughs) I mean just just one after another first round KOs Sonny Liston was an absolute tank he's like a bigger Mike Tyson like maybe like a bigger and meaner Mike Tyson just an absolute uh nightmare a truly a scary nightmare he's just a monster so a 22 year old Cassius Clay up against Sonny Liston uh the 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 22 year old thing I got a little obsessed with I wasted far too much time trying to do this I wanted to look up other 22 year old celebrities now 
So you could have the context of going, oh, what if that dude was the heavyweight champion of the world right now? A 22-year-old, because a 22-year-old person is very young to be at the top of your career, particularly when your career is prize fighting. So I looked for other 22-year-old celebrities, and I'm like, I don't recognize any of these people. And that tips my hand. I'm telling you how old I am now. I'm looking at these people. I'm like, Emma Chamberlain (laughs) is like a YouTube person. Lil Pump, I don't know. I've seen like Lil Pump's face. I don't know any of his music. Lil Pump, they're both 22. Michael, do you know any 22-year-olds to help sort of with the context here? I, I don't even know any uh, thirty year olds, but I, here's the context I always, I always have. Right, twenty two twenty two year old Michael Jordan, right, was right nothing. He yes. was like a twenty two year old, twenty two year old uh, Reggie Jackson, right, twenty two year old. Like none of these people were significant figures, right, right, twenty um, two year old. Anybody in any sport, they're either getting out of college or they hadn't made their mark right. in the sport yet. And in a sport like boxing, we have to forget, like, it's not just about speed and power. But a 22-year-old in boxing isn't really a man. He hasn't filled out. Most mm-hmm. of the people who were 22-year-olds, heavyweight, who eventually became heavyweight champion, moved up to heavyweight right. after they were 22 yes. years old because right. they weren't big and strong enough to be a boxer against a grown man. Mm -hmm. Great point. Evan Mobley right now, Evan Mobley, the Cavs, that skinny little dude. He is 22 right now. Imagine Evan Mobley winning the heavyweight belt. The response would be like, he's a kid. I I don't mean to be an ageist or dismiss him as a kid, but 22 years old, just outrageous to think about. Anyways, the heavyweight champion, mob enforcer, Sonny Liston versus the 22-year-old Cassius Clay. Liston's corner throws in the towel after six rounds, completely outmatched a marvelous performance of athleticism by Clay. Now, Clay is the heavyweight champion of the world. We keep going here. His first order of business is to publicly announce his Islamic faith and name change to Muhammad Ali. That happened March 6th, 1964. Michael, can you add any context here? What was it like or what can you imagine it being like for a black male celebrity in the United States in 1964 to come out and say, not only am I a black Muslim, but I'm changing my name just after winning the heavyweight championship of the world. So it was, first of all, insane for him. It was a big leap of not just faith, right? Like you have to remember in 1964, like Martin Luther King was seen as a radical. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so it's not just the the black Muslim thing. It was just like a black guy saying things right. out loud right. was considered radical. And yeah. it, it, there really is no comparison today. It would be like Colin Kaepernick doing what he did after the Super Bowl, after right. he played in the Super Bowl, but he would have to win that Super Bowl, right? <laughs> um, to to do right, like that is kind of the equivalent of it.
Something else happened in 1964 to Ali. He failed the U.S. Armed Forces qualifying test because, quote, his writing and spelling skills were substandard. But in 1965, with the Vietnam War escalating, the United States somehow lowered their test standards, and all of a sudden, Ali was reclassified and eligible to be drafted. When told the change, Ali publicly stated he would refuse to fight if drafted, saying, quote, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. So to put that in context, so we said the thing about Kaepernick, but so when you think about this in the context of sports, let's think about it in the context of sports. A team sport like football isn't a great comparison because the thing we forget is how big boxing was. Right. It was right. bigger than football, bigger than baseball. Right. Like it was the sport, the heavyweight. Cha- and he was the heavyweight champion of the world. The heavyweight champion of the world since the 1930s was the biggest celebrity yes. in the world. Top it was the, he, the, the heavyweight champion of the world was bigger than Beyonce. It was bigger mm-hmm. than the president of the United States. It was and it is not an exaggeration to say the most he was the most famous person in the world at the beginning of his career he was something that this sport the biggest sport had never seen and he said you can have it all because i believe this like this is like you can i'll take everything i've ever done significant in my life and say hey you can have it Oh, not because I have something better to do. I do not believe in the yes. thing that you want me to do. Oh, my God. And I will not just not do the thing. I will give up being the biggest celebrity in the world oh. on the planet and go to jail oh. because I believe in a thing. Like, to me, like just thinking about it in those in that context to take everything that he had that nobody on earth has really ever had that kind of thing. He was the biggest star in the biggest sport and he was bigger than all of the other stars before him. And he said, nah, you can have it. I'll just walk away. (laughs) I, and also by the by, he's like, in theory, he would be ruining his earning potential forever. Like you're taking the thing away from him, not just for a time. He's saying, take this and take it in theory forever. I won't ever want this back. Take it now and take it forever. It's just wild. I also want to just take a moment and go, I'm, I find myself laughing here. I don't mean to laugh at any of this. It's just amazing to think about. And it's very cool and it's manifesting itself in laughter for me, but I am fucking blown away. It's all overwhelming to think about it also feels kind of impossible for me to actually wrap my head around as a a not black person and be someone that was that didn't go through that era and have to deal with any of the things that all those people had to deal with uh it's it seems kind of difficult to wrap my head completely around but it's fascinating to think about back to his sports career ali would go on to beat liston again and then he just absolutely destroyed floyd patterson that fight is very uncomfortable to watch he beat chavalo henry cooper and ernie terrell among others running his record to a perfect 29 and 0 in 1967 by april of 67 ali had exhausted all of his appeals 
in terms of his, he, he, you know, he wanted to be a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War and not be drafted. He had sort of run out of appeals. And on April 28th, 1967, at the U.S. Armed Forces Induction Center in Houston, Texas, Ali refused three times to step forward at the call of his name, thereby refusing to join the U.S. Army in the Vietnam War. That brings us to our moment, the Cleveland Summit, June 4th, 1967. So we are, what, a, a, a month away from Ali refusing to step forward and join the U.S. Army uh, in the Vietnam War. And we put together the Cleveland Summit. Michael, would you take us through what you know about the Cleveland Summit? And I'll add it. I'll add some stuff if my research found anything that you've not added. But uh, uh, can you take us through what you know about the Cleveland Summit? So the Cleveland Summit, first of all, you have to realize that like, this is Cleveland the mayor of Cleveland, it was the first, he was one of the first mayors of a major city in America. And you have to remember what what people don't realize about it. After Ali refused induction, they came to him and said, hey, you don't even have to fight. Like if you just join the army, we'll let you fight in exhibition matches. Right. And just like entertain people, like like do what Elvis did, right? right? Like just play the guitar, you'll be safe. You right. won't have to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. And he said no again. And so they, Jim Brown, and uh, you know some, his a few football players, Muhammad uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, uh, Bill Russell, and uh, uh, this little this new kind of. Uh, rookie kind of kid, Lou Alcindor, uh, <laughs> they said, we're going to meet and we're going to talk about this. Um, we're going to have a, we're going to, first we're going to have a discussion. And so there's a little bit of dispute. So some of the people said that they were trying to talk Ali into, into saying, man, look, you, that's the best deal possible. Right. We don't want you to go to jail and we don't want to see, because for them, and for Black America, remember, right, this was a couple of years after the Civil Rights Act, right? Um, a couple of years after the Voting Rights Act. And this was like what we're seeing, like after the, what we saw after the election of Obama. Like this was kind of, they were experiencing this kind of uh, racial backlash. And so this was what they felt like, this is the best deal you're going to get. You're going to, we don't want to see you throw, we throw, we care about you. We don't want to see right. you throw right. away your career. Um, and Ali was, by then, had become a spokesperson for all Black people, right? Like, he was a new, he was that post-civil rights era, brash, bold, I am going to say what I think um, person. And so he was beloved by some despised by a large part of America and they didn't want to see him ruin his life and what he stood for because he represented so much more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they met in this uh, uh, building, uh, uh, Afro-American Economic Development Building and discussed it. And some people say that he convinced them to stand by his side 
Others say that, you know, some of them were on his side or with his decision because they knew they weren't going to convince Ali. And they came and announced, like, we are standing behind him. And, you know, Jim Brown, perhaps the Ali of his sport, Mm -hmm. um, was one of the seminal figures there. Uh, Now, I know the image. And prior to this episode and doing the research, I have to admit, but I think it's okay to admit, I didn't know much about the story. I think that's the point of this, right? You go, I don't know. And then you go learn about the thing. In researching this, I didn't know that Jim Brown sort of put this meeting together. I did not know, uh, as you noted, that there were some competing ulterior motives here. Bob Arum, famous boxing promoter, and I think worked for Ali's boxing promotion company at the time, he has since told the story that not only had they arranged that uh, deal where Ali could uh, you know, go Bob Hope it and go do boxing exhibitions for troops and have that be his service, and then he can you know, both go be, uh, you know, acquiesce and go be part of the United States Armed Forces, go be drafted. You're fulfilling that quote unquote obligation, but you're not in any real danger. You're not going to go kill anyone. You're not going to go fight anyone in theory. Uh, And then you get to keep your career. You get to go fight. But Aram also was like working to set up fights in that period and told some of the other athletes that were showing up to the Cleveland summit, if you can help me help Ali see this path towards this deal, I will give you a piece of these upcoming fights that we will line up for Ali. So some of these men in theory had a financial reason through Aram to help convince Ali to take this deal and, and agree to agree to be drafted. Yeah, that is, that is the amazing thing. And then, so there's a little bit of controversy about that too. So what people say was, was Bob Aram trying to get into like wider sports, uh, the wider sports business Mm. or, you know, was he just, I mean, first of all, like, do you trust Bob Aaron? Right. right. Um, that's the fundamental premise of it. And do you take that money? Do you show up just because Bob Aram said, right. I'll give you some money? Right. Um, because, like, I can't imagine if Ali doesn't know you and respect you. And then there's also the, you know, the, Aram double back was like, no, it was mean. I was going to get the money to the black community. Like the percentage of the <laughs> money that for the fights, it was going to be going to the black. I don't know what the black community. I didn't know there was a black community bank, but that was, you know, a, a later excuse. But it is, it is remarkable. First of all, like we just need to take a moment and think about who was in that room. Right. Like, like you, you know, we've talked, earlier about my belief that Bill Russell undoubtedly is the greatest basketball player ever. I'm not talking about before him. I'm talking about at this time that we are recording this podcast. He is still the greatest player ever. We cannot, we just can't understand how great he was. We can't fathom (laughs) the idea of Bill Russell because there are no comparables, right? Like he never lost, right? Right. And, 
some of the things that we think are great are great just because they set. Like we think the Celtics coach, Red Arbar, we think of him as a great coach. Like it's probably the greatest coach in the history of basketball when he was a terrible coach before Bill Russell played, right? <laughs> and he never did anything after. He was only great <laughs> when Bill Russell played, right? Just think right. of it. Look at his career, right? He never did anything significant <laughs> except with Bill Russell, right? <laughs> and I think people don't understand that Bill Russell lost, went to college. He won both championships, lost two games. His entire college career, he lost two games. <laughs> One, he was hurt. Bill Russell then, a lot of people don't know that Bill Russell was probably, because we don't, we look at that old footage and because it's in black and white, mm -hmm. we can't fathom his athletic mm -hmm. ability. Bill Russell might have been the greatest high jumper who ever lived. Right? <laughs> so the summer, remember, when Bill Russell, they were going to keep Bill Russell off of the Olympic team after he graduated from college because he had already been drafted. They said pros can't play in the Olympics. And he said, oh, that's cool. I could be in the high jump. And there are stories, I mean, documented stories that Bill Russell jumped seven feet oh my God. at a college track tournament. But he had won. So he was like, it was over. He jumped six, nine. He beat um, his nearest competitor. His competitor went on to win the gold medal. That that Olympics was the first time somebody ever jumped seven feet. And Bill Russell did not know. So we, we know the Fosbury flop, right? Mm -hmm. You jump over the wing, turn your back. But that's not how Bill Russell was jumping. He was hurdling the bar. <laughs> he did not know the technique. Again, and he's like, I'll just practice all summer, get that technique down, and win the gold medal. <laughs> but, but he didn't have to because he played again to get then he went to the pros mm -hmm. and won every championship except two <laughs> then he stopped playing and won coach two like, <laughs> but because basketball is a team sport and we say well like an individual doesn't have right. as much impact on a team like we can't fathom that the only constant throughout his career was that Bill Russell was on Bill mm -hmm. Russell's team, mm -hmm. right? Like the coaches changed, the players changed, the other players in the NBA changed, the game changed, right? Everybody plays, like people didn't jump. Jumping was thought to be bad if you were a defensive player. Right. And Bill Russell introduced jumping to <laughs> defensive basketball, right? Like the way we think of Bill Russell, we cannot fathom because right. There are no comparables. If, if, right. if Michael Jordan is great because he won six championships, how great is Bill Russell? Because he won all of them. Right? <laughs> right when, just think about whenever from when he was 18 years old until the day he never played anymore, he was the greatest basketball player oh in the world. God. Every day, every time he stepped on the court from <laughs> when he was 18 years old until he never played again, he was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. It's it's wild to think about. And and it's and then the other thing I wanted to add, and it sort of dovetails with this podcast in a way, when I think about like modern players and modern athletes that I think are great. When I think about the greatest guys, you go, oh, well, 
Shaq is was this like impossible, you know, dominant force. He was hell on earth. And you know, you think about particular moments, you think about him tearing the basket off at the Meadowlands. You think about him catching the the lob from Kobe and dunking. You think about all these crazy singular moments and those singular moments like this podcast, it elevates your opinion of these dudes. And as I think about Bill Russell, I go, well, I'm not old enough to remember those singular moments. Like you go, yes, Bill Russell won a lot of championships and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's a bunch of white guys, you know, Dolph Shays is playing and like stuff like that. You like you, you figure out ways to dismiss him. But if you look for those moments, if you look for the singular moments, they're all there. Bill Russell in the 1962 finals, game seven against the rival Los Angeles Lakers, Russell finishes game seven with 30 points and 40 rebounds as Boston wins in overtime. And he played all 53 minutes of the game. You can't like you, 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 you can figure out a way to dismiss someone like Bill Russell black and white footage nobody cared not enough teams you can figure out all the ways but if uh, the flip side of that coin is if you look for moments that speak to his greatness they're all fucking there in black and white pardon my french he is a goddamn legend and uh, the other thing i always say about bill russell is that one of the greatest testaments to bill russell's legacy is that if if bill russell didn't exist michael jordan would wouldn't be considered the greatest basketball player in the world simply because, and I'm not talking about like what, how Bill Russell revolutionized the game and all mm. of that. But if Bill Russell didn't exist, then there would be no doubt that Wilt Chamberlain was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Right. right? Like the only <laughs> thing standing between Wilt Chamberlain and immortality was Bill Russell. Oh my right? God. Like the greatest. That's so good. Right. You, you think about, a man who could score 100 points in a game, Ugh. Bill Russell used to shut him down. That is, I've never considered that. You're absolutely right. The butterfly effect on Bill Russell never existing is they, they, we're not discussing anybody but Will Chamberlain. That's hysterical. Right, right. Not even, it, Michael Jordan wouldn't even be close, right? Because the only thing Michael Jordan has over, he, he wasn't as good of a scorer. He wasn't, like the only thing he has over Will Chamberlain is six titles. Right. And Wilt Chamberlain would have that. Like, he'd be yeah. trying to catch up with Wilt Chamberlain for if sure. not for Russell. Yep. You're absolutely right. It's a That's a great point. I love that. And to our point, Bill Russell is one of the 12 men at this event supporting Muhammad Ali. It's it's really wild to think about. the the And the other thing is some of these guys, and again, I don't know the, the history on – all of the football players, uh, to your point, Jim Brown, obviously at the time, the NFL's all-time leading rusher had just retired. He's the NFL's all-time leading rusher. He's at the Cleveland Summit. Ali, of course, perhaps the greatest athlete, prize fighter of all time. Bill Russell, the greatest champion in team sports history. Lou Alcindor, as you mentioned, sophomore at UCLA, March 25th, 1967. So, you know what, a couple 30 odd days after he wins his first national championship for the Bruins, he's at the Cleveland Summit. Uh, John Wooten, Sid Williams, and Walter Beach of the Cleveland Browns are there. Bobby Mitchell and Jim Shorter of the Washington's football team. Curtis McClinton of the Kansas City Chiefs. Willie Davis of the Green Bay Packers. And then, as you mentioned, Carl Stokes, attorney in Cleveland, who, who then went on to be the first elected 
black mayor of a major American city. He's also at this event. Maybe some of these people have reasons, financial reasons to talk Ali out of this or, or talk Ali into, into enlisting. Uh, there's all, some of those men also served in the, in the armed services. And so they're a little, not super thrilled with Ali and the stance he's taking because they've already done their service. They've gone and, and put in their time, uh, and given quote unquote, given to this country. So, you know, the, the, the conversation as I've read got a little chippy at the start here. You know, there's a lot of back and forth about, you know, is, is Ali legit? Is he believing this? It's when I look at that picture, this is the last thing I want to add. When I look at that picture, when I think about that moment, you see those legends and you see them, those four absolute monoliths, those four giants in the front of that picture. And they're, they're backed, they're supported by these other men, these proud men that are there. And you look at that picture and it looks like solidarity. We're here to support Ali. He's just said he's not going to go report. He's not going to enlist. He, everything is on, is on the line for him and we're here to support him. But what I find even an even more moving and meaningful story is that maybe they weren't all there to support him initially. And through the conversation that they had with him, they ended up believing in him, believing in his convictions, and then supporting him. And to me, that is a far more powerful story to tell. Yeah, and I think I think that idea of listening, like, because it's easy to go in there with the idea that you're going to convince Ali, whatever your position is, I'm going to convince Ali or I'm going to stand with Ali. Ali. But the appearance of solidarity, Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the unity. And then, again, it's just important to note what these people were risking. Right. Like, these were the greatest stars in the greatest sports. Like this, like there weren't 50 black millionaires in the United right. States. Right. At this time. Right. And the greatest basketball player, the man who probably who many thought might be his successor. And Ali. Mm -hmm. And then like we gotta have a whole conversation about Jim Brown. Cause like mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, even the people who argue against Bill Russell being the greatest basketball player of all time, like it's there are very few people who argue that Jim Brown, until like Tom Brady won like his his last Super Bowl, like it was all Jim Brown. Like most people say, like the greatest football player is Jim Brown, maybe Jerry Rice, because of his longevity. Mm -hmm. But what Jim Brown did in football, again, it's hard to fathom because he was doing it in 12 games and we're tra transposing it to 16 games. But he was running for 1,500 yards and like averaging 100 yards per game when it was 12 games. And he was selected as the best running back in football every year except one when he was hurt and they didn't give him the ball as much. Like he was the first team all pro First All-Pro running back every year he played except one. Oh my god! He was he played in the Pro Bowl every year, right? He was a three-time MVP at running back. <laughs> and there are people who say he probably he might have been the greatest lacrosse player who ever lived. Yes, I've heard that as well. It's amazing to think about. And I appreciate you also bringing up what they're all putting on the line. And you look at Al Cinder, you know now Kareem. 
What he's what 19, 20 years old. I, I love, by the by, I love that story as a freshman, I guess in college at the time you couldn't play. So freshman Lou Alcindor goes to UCLA. UCLA is the, I believe two time back to back defending national champion at the time. Alcindor joins UCLA and in their first game before the season, Alcindor and the Scrubs, the bench guys, beat the upperclassmen, the starters, the two-time defending champions. He beat them by like 15, and Alcindor had like 30 and 20 in a fucking scrimmage and destroyed them. He's 20 years old. He's won his first national title. He's, in theory, potentially giving up his next 23 years of his career in basketball and all of his earning potential just by being at this event at this moment and supporting this man. It's wild to think about everything that was on the line in a moment like this. Again, it's almost like it's like the universe. It's too big for us to really even wrap our heads around and totally get in with our sort of modern understanding. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 wild to think about it in that context. And then we have to realize, like, if the time that they were in, right, like this was a radical idea for the black people to express this kind of solidarity and kind of uh, rejection of the cultural and social and political norms. And back then, like, no one would have to give a reason to say, well, Jim Brown, you can't play football anymore. Right, right. Right, or Jim Brown, you can't. Like, like, they just said, hey, we people don't, we don't like what you did. Right. You can't play anymore. That's right. Right? You don't have to break a law or anything. And so they they were putting their entire career on the line. When you think about on just like the athlete sports side, it's like confounding how special the moment was. But on the exact opposite side of that coin, when you think about the 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 social impact and the weight of this moment on the other side, and just by being a black man at at this moment in this country. It's just a a wild convergence of of stories here. We have to decide whether the Cleveland Summit is good enough for the first ballot Hall of Fame. To do that, we have to go through our Hall of Fame credentials. Those are the categories by which we judge our moment. The first credential, as always, analytics. Here are some numbers behind this moment. Twelve. Twelve men attended the Cleveland Summit. We've named all of them already. 12 uh, special guys. That's that's the truth, uh, in short. Uh, at Ali's trial on June 20th, 1967. So this is now after the Cleveland Summit. This is sort of the wrap-up to this Cleveland Summit story. So we had the Cleveland Summit. Everyone stands in solidarity with Ali. What happens after that? At Ali's trial on June 20th, 1967, it took an all-white jury 21 minutes to find Ali guilty and convict him of draft dodging his titles, his license to prize fight, both stripped away, taken away. Federal District Judge Joe E. Ingraham sentenced Clay, Ali at the time, to five years in prison and fined him $10,000. After a court of appeals upheld the conviction, the case eventually made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which we'll get to in a second. But it just... um, you have this moment and it's impactful. And then immediately an all white jury goes, no, 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 you're out of, you're out of your mind. You're guilty and you're going to go to jail. And it happens like that snap of a finger, super easy. 
this moment comes and goes and an all white jury convicts him. It's uh, just insane to think about. Yeah. And we also have to kind of acknowledge the other uh, analytics to in that the number of people who were killed, you know, we have to remember Becker Everett and all of the people who were killed for doing that, those kinds of things back then um, and the bravery that took. And again, the analytics. So you have to ask yourself this, how many championships, gold medals uh, were in that room? Mm. And on that day is that day. You got to think about that, right? Like, so because if you think about this as a team, right? So do you, can you compare any other team, not just in a, a political event or a gathering, right? Like, there probably wasn't a basketball team still now to this day that had as many titles as the people who was not a football team. Not, like, so you got to think about those analytics mm-hmm. uh, and in, in comparing and deciding whether it is a first ballot Hall of Fame. Ali lost three of the peak years of his boxing career, 25 to 28. Again, for reference, Mbappe is 25 right now. Jason Tatum is 25 right now. Imagine those guys getting yanked from their sports for three years and then coming back somewhere down the road. Giannis is 28 right now. Jokic is 28. Mahomes will be 28 very soon. Imagine erasing the last three years of their careers. Anything happen in the last three years for those three guys? Wild to think about. Uh, the I mentioned the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did vote, and the vote was, they heard the case. The vote, ultimately, the vote was five to three, confirming Ali's jail time of five years. So, the Supreme Court upheld this decision and we're going to send him to court again, these are to jail rather. These are all things I just did not know. The Supreme Court clerk, Tom Crattenmaker, who worked for one of the justices, uh, got that justice to flip his vote by detailing that Muslims are opposed to all wars not declared by God. He sort of went on the line and told this justice, Yes, Ali has said this about the Viet Cong, but he's against all wars not declared by Allah. And on the strength of that, got that justice to flip. But as I read, and again, Mike, you can tell me if this is wrong, a 4-4 tie apparently still goes to the House. Apparently a 4-4 tie would still mean that Ali has to go to jail. And as I read, and again, tell me if this is true or false, the justices who did not want to set the precedent of this is how you get out of the Vietnam draft, ended up looking for a procedure and found a procedural error. The state appeal board that denied Ali's conscientious objector status did not list a reason why they denied that claim. They said, no, you cannot be a conscientious objector, but they did not list the reason why. And what I read was that the Supreme Court used that sort of clerical error to go, let's use that and flip the conviction and say that Ali does not have to go, overturn this, Ali doesn't have to go to jail. It was an 8-0 unanimous vote, but all hinged off of that fact, that sort of clerical error that they use that to go, we're not establishing a precedent, but also this guy doesn't have to go because now we're, we're I don't know why they flipped, but apparently it happened, and I and I'm glad that it, that it did. Is that all true? 
Yeah, so, yeah, Ali was going to jail. Like, the, the judges, on the merits of the case, the justices had decided that he was going to jail. And the interesting thing about, if you read some of the proposed opinions on that, was that their, their basis was not in really the law mm. or his freedom of speech or his right to protest, but that, well... If he's allowed to do this, it'll be bad for this society because right. we can't stop anybody from being right. a conscientious objector. So right. he had they, what they were saying is he has the right, but what's to stop anybody else mm -hmm. from say from utilizing that loophole? And so he was going to jail, and they found that loophole of the clerical error, and that's what saved him. It's kind of like, and listen, this is obviously, it's not like this at all, but also it is. And I just want to say it so that all of you listening can take this with you wherever you might be. If you get a parking ticket and they list your color on the ticket as gray, you can write in and go, no, 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 my car's not gray. It's silver. <laughs> Whatever you need to do because they list that thing, if you can make, and listen, I've done this. I've done this. I've had multiple parking tickets in New York City overturned, flipped. I've also had them just reduced by 10, 20 bucks. Listen, I'll take it. The point is sometimes you can use that little clerical mistake in your favor. And I just, listen, I'm giving that to you guys. You can take that with you, use it wherever you might uh, uh, feel the need to. Um, <laughs> back to uh, uh, Ali's career here, just very quickly to sort of wrap this up. March 8th, 1971 is the fight of the century. Frazier Ali won. June 28th, 1971, the Supreme Court overturns Ali's conviction. If you don't know what happened, those are, again, whatever, like a month or so apart. Uh, the fight of the century, Frazier Ali won. If you've not seen, if you don't know it, uh, Frazier absolutely knocks Ali's block off. First loss of his career, just an absolute annihilating leaping left hook just crushes Ali. And then a month later, he's got to go stand in front of the Supreme court, decide if he's got to go to jail. Imagine if he gets knocked out by Frazier and then gets sent to jail for five years, that would have been a rough goddamn spring for the champ. Good God almighty. And then three years after that, Ali would return beat Frazier in their second fight, then go on to knock out George Foreman, the rumble in the jungle, which many consider, you know, maybe the greatest fight ever. 10 years since Ali won his first title and seven years after Ali relinquished his belt, he's the heavyweight champion again. Just an insane sports story. He, you want to hear a, a, a interesting story, uh, like a caveat tidbit that'll, I think, propel it. Please. So the reason we know about the FBI program, COINTELPRO, the reason we know that F the FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide, the reason that we know that the FBI was involved in the death of Malcolm X and Fred Hampton and, you know, all spied on all of this, every civil, civil rights era was because a group of people just wanted to expose the Vietnam War for, for what it is. Mm. So they wanted, they planned to break into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, but they needed a cover. Like, when could you, when, the, when is the FBI not paying attention? Right. So they chose the night of Ali's return 
of Amazing. the fight of the century Amazing. broke into the media Pennsylvania FBI office. Ugh. And that's how we know all of this history of the FBI and their surveillance, including their surveillance of Muhammad Ali. Oh, my God. God, that's fantastic. I had no clue. Yeah, it is a, an incredible story. Oh, my God. Let's move to our next credential, the eye and the ear test. You know, the thing about this, you know, we usually do an eye and ear test where we sort of look at the moment and, and judge it and listen to it. The, what I Kind of what I love about this is that there is no footage or audio of this. Nobody's sneaking a cell phone camera into this room and recording it, releasing it to TMZ Sports. It's Someone mentioned on the show once the idea of – the lore behind some of these moments. You know, you think about the guy in the, you know, West fourth quarter, whatever it was that took a quarter off the top of the backboard, like all of those stories, those legendary stories that exist. You don't know whether they're true. You don't know whether they're false. And there's something fantastic about that. I don't know what happened in this meeting. I don't know what the conversation was like. You know, there's, there's, there's not really a ton of footage. I haven't been able to find it of what these guys were saying or wh what was said. And I think that's, lovely i think that's uh, uh i enjoy having to hear the recounted stories from the jim browns and the other men that were there uh, uh, about what happened that day because what you see is this picture this photo that's what you remember uh the 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 next credentials are test of time how, how does this protest like i mean i don't want you to compare them it's, it's, you know, normally when we do this segment, the test of time, we go, is there any other moment that's like this that's better than this moment? I don't mean to compare social protests here, but I do want to throw the question to you. When you think about this protest versus what happened, you know, when George Floyd was murdered in the, the NBA bubble and you think about Cap and what he's done. How do these protests stack up? Are they are the are the more recent ones influenced by the Cleveland summit? Your thoughts on 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 where the Cleveland summit uh, uh, sits amongst these other uh, social protests from Black athletes? I think you have to compare. Okay, you have uh, the fist at the Olympics, Tommy John and Juan, Car John, uh, right. Juan Carlos. This moment is pre-Tommy Smith and jo John Carlos. This Cleveland Summit is before that Olympics. Right, right, exactly. And you have, of course, Colin Kaepernick, and you have other protests, uh, you know, throughout the history of sports. But I think what makes this so remarkable is when you take those lists of people, none of them are the greatest of all time. Like the greatest athlete in his sport of all time, still to this day. Right. In the heyday, in the heyday of his career, again, he didn't risk it. He gave it to them. <laughs> he knew what would happen. And yeah. he said, you can have it. Ugh. Right? Like we think about him risking his career. Like Colin Kaepernick probably couldn't have fathomed what happened to him, mm. right? All of the other people, they risked something. Ali packed it into a bag and gave it to them and said, I don't want it oh if that God. is what I have to do. Uh, and I think that's what, what differentiates this from everything else. So good. 
Uh, so good. Uh, the next credentials are press conference. Any great quotes from this? Uh, I found a newsreel, uh, sort of an old timey newsreel thing about this moment. Let's listen to that, uh, and we'll get we'll we'll jump back into some of the quotes from this from this moment here in a second. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. They include Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and former pro footballer Jimmy Brown. Says Brown after the meeting, the champ is sincere in his religious beliefs. He believes in his religion and his stand is based wholly on that. Clay's induction refusal cost him his title and he faces a possible five-year prison sentence. He claims exemption as a minister of the black Muslim faith. I don't know who that uh, gentleman is that's speaking, and I uh, apologize to both him and all of his family uh, that's that's come uh, since this. But I, when you hear that music and that voice reading that type of thing, it just feels very <laughs> racist, doesn't it? And I'm not black, but it just, I, you hear that start and I'm like, oh, this is racist. Whatever they're saying is racist. I'm so sorry. I, that's just the way it comes off to me. I just think he's probably had on a fedora when he was in the studio eating it. <laughs> flicking his cigarette right before it uh anyways here are some quotes from this moment before the summit I'll, i just want to take a chance to, a moment to read these because they're i just find them to be incredibly moving before the summit ali says quote no i will not go ten thousand miles from here to help murder and kill another poor people simply to continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people of the earth the real enemies of my people are right here, not in Vietnam, unquote. Uh, here's another Ali quote. Quote, my conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me the N-word. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Shoot them for what? How can I shoot them poor people? Just take me to jail. You said it already. He's re he's putting this thing in a box, wrapping it up and handing his career to them and going, take it, it's yours. It's just wild to think about someone saying that now you can't even, you can't even wrap your head around what it would be like now. You, you can't, we can't. It's all, it's almost like, and again, this is like a wild comparison, but when it's like reading about some crazy pandemic before COVID, you're like, oh, that's nuts. But you can't conceive of what it's actually like to to imagine a scenario where someone goes steps forward now, the greatest athlete of all time coming out and saying something like that now. It's just insane to think about, and I can't wrap my head around it. Wild. The like, what am I called? again? You know, I'm a Bill Russell stan. He says yes. He said he has something I have never been able to attain. Just think about this. The greatest winner in the history of sports. He has something I have never been able to attain and something very few people I know possess. He has an absolute and sincere faith. I am not worried about Muhammad Ali. He is better equipped than anyone I know to withstand the trials in store for him. What I'm worried about is the rest of us. God damn. I mean, that is a killer quote. That is amazing. Chilling. That is crazy to yeah. think about. It's, it's, it's also in a, I mean, if you get down into like the nitty gritty of it, 
you are there in this moment. You've been chosen. You're there. You're representing this guy. You're supporting this guy. And then also people go, well, we want to hear what you have to say. And you don't just say something. You say that. And that, and that, that perfectly written thing that's moving and succinct, it's just that, that if you don't think that it's additive to this, to the greatness of this moment, you're insane. That is some hell of a quote. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a great quote. And then, so, so, you know, there are rumors that like they were, they came to blows or almost came to blows. Some of the guys at that yes. meeting, because like you said, some of them were veterans. So it also adds to the lore, like who wins a fight in that room, right? Because right? even Jim Brown versus Muhammad Ali, that's a hard, like who you choosing, <laughs> right? Who is you, right? You got you got Bill Russell's long arms. I don't know, man. <laughs> that is a lot of fun to think about because also like Kareem is like yeah. just young enough. He's like uh, on top of the world. Like maybe he's got that like unlimited confidence of a college kid who's like, that's like peak. Like I'm never going to die when you're in college, you're driving like a hundred miles an hour on the highway. Like you don't, you think you're never going to die when you're in college. So even throwing in that energy into that room and he, you know, he goes on, he like, he eventually goes on to train with with Bruce Lee. Maybe he knows a little bit about the martial arts. That's a wild yeah. fight to think about. Who comes out of there? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to try. I'd just sit down. <laughs> John Wooten uh, from the Browns had a phenomenal clip. This is from a short documentary that Uninterrupted put together. John, here's John Wooten talking about Bill Russell during the Cleveland Summit. Let's listen. Russell said, Champ, you have totally convinced me. He says, as a matter of fact, if you can get the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to just ease back on that rib and chop, I'll join y'all tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> a great quote. And then here's Bobby Mitchell. Uh, NFL great Bobby Mitchell as well at the Cleveland Summit. Here's Mitchell on Russell again uh, during the meeting. We all go out there and we tell the press that we believe in Muhammad Ali, thanks, and we're going to go into the service in his place. <laughs> that Bill Russell is able to be there, be moving, be succinct, uh, be supportive, represent himself, his people, his team, his sport, his career, put everything on the line. And then to also do it with a sense of humor. Uh, he really is a special guy, Bill Russell. Amazing, amazing guy. Yeah, I think, I think. And then he was the, sort of the elder statesman of that crew that was in there, mm -hmm. um, you know, just for them to have that much respect when at, I mean, you got to also factor in that he lived in Boston mm -hmm. um, and all that entails. So it's, again, it's a, an amazing collection of people. And then again, like Willie Davis was what, like he was a two time Super Bowl champion, like four times won the NFL championship. Like it's not just, the headliners, right? Um, there were some really significant people in that room. Amazing. Uh, the next credentials, Twitter fingers. Any great tweets from this moment? Of course not. Uh, this is the 60s. Uh, so I want to ask you some a couple of questions about you. You're fantastic, Michael, on Twitter. 
And as I think about your columns and as I think about the podcast that you've done, I go, man, how do you decide? And again, if you don't follow Michael Harry, my God, you should. Some truly amazing, same thing, uh, moving uh, tweet threads, moving stories, uh, told succinctly, told in an entertaining way. All of the same things that we've just been lauding these men for doing, you do the same thing. on. Tw- Honestly, you, your content is probably better than the platform. I'm not certain that the platform deserves your work there. As I think about all of the different things you do, how do you decide what becomes a thread versus what becomes a column or what becomes an episode of one of your podcasts that it's or goes into your books? Like, How do you decide those things? So on Twitter, what I essentially do is like you can make an argument. Twitter is a place for an argument. Here is the thing you're right about or you're wrong about. Here's the thing that I believe. And these are the reasons why. Here's a fact, here's a fact, here's a chart, here's a graph, here's a quote, here's a website you can click on, and that is why this thing is. That's Twitter is perfect for that, right? right. You don't have to convince anybody. And so when there are no, more nuanced arguments, right, you have to write a column about it, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you can't, you have to, it's a collection and you have to kind of introduce the idea to people, right? It's this is what everybody is talking about today. This is what's going on today. And here's an explainer, or here's a different way to think about this thing. But a book is etching it in stone. It's not for today. Someone is for someone to read 20 years from now, from now and hopefully it'll still be relevant, right. or hopefully it will be a capsule of what is going on in this era. Right. Uh, the uh, Your book, Black AF, Black as Fuck History, Black AF history, the unwhitewashed uh, story of America. It is coming out in September. Is that right? Yeah, September nineteenth. Yeah, I'm 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 really excited about sharing it with people and having them uh, read it. Not just learning about history, but I think it's told. You know what? I, what? What I think I try to do is to take the stuff that you know people might know or people might talk about in academics. Might you know? My background is I am an economist, not necessarily a historian. Mm. And then I ended up teaching a class that combined the two. But to do it in a relatable way, to to make it funny and engaging and story-based instead of Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. numbers-based and to help people understand it. And then the other thing is like we tend to tell history in like this is a thing that happened on this date or a long time ago and not tie it together with the present. So this thing happened, which caused this thing to happen, Mm -hmm. which caused this thing that is happening now, right? And you can't understand this thing that is happening now unless you know about this thing that happened a hundred years ago, right? And I think it puts it into context. It lets us, gives us greater understanding. But I think you know, when you just reduce it to a bunch of dates and times and people and not stories, mm-hmm. people kind of get bored with mm-hmm. it. Well, I mean, mission accomplished all of the work that you've done. And I can't wait to read the book, but all the work that you've done up to this point, it's it's entertaining. That's the thing that, and again, I, I sort of was apologizing earlier on for laughing, but you put these things in a way that makes it entertaining out of the gate. And because it's some of these, some awful moments from history at times, I feel bad for like enjoying the story and enjoying the way you tell it 
but I think it's a, I think it's obviously important for it to be sticky and for people to listen to it and give it a chance. And I laud your ability to sort of ride those levels and be able to do both teach me things, move me and entertain me. I just think it's fantastic. Michael, I've appreciated you being here, what you've brought to the episode. I do want to have a little bit of fun at every episode. We do do a segment called more important. It's actually America's favorite podcast segment is voted on by the American people. I usually bait people here, my guest, into a particularly sort of difficult question, and then I cut them off because I think it's funny to cut people off. But I'm not going to do that today during this episode because you are who you are. It would feel weird. So can we just play more important the segment right now, me and you, Michael Harriet? Okay. Yeah, sure. Perfect, Rob. Hit the music. It's time for something more important. Uh, Michael, I'm about to ask you a series of questions, and your answers to these questions will define who you are as a man on this planet. Are you ready for more important? I hope so. Michael, Harriet, what is your favorite beverage? I am from South Carolina, so the answer is iced tea, obviously. Great answer. I appreciate it being tied to your home. Uh, who? Next question. Who is your favorite white person? Alex Trebek. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm going to go with Alex Trebek. Final answer. <laughs> Michael, why isn't everything on brioche bread? You like fresh brioche roll, right? You like one of those, right? First of all, um, we live in America, so some people are going to call it brick, brick bread. Um, and then I think the reason brioche bread is good is because everything isn't on brioche bread. Because like if you had right. peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, on brioche bread, then you get t- like it'd just be bread, oh, right? Like, <laughs> right? Like, why? Why isn't everything between two pieces of pie? Because <laughs> pie is a special thing. Like I like pound cake. What a I'd great eat answer! Everything between two pieces of pound cake. So I think like we got to let brioche bread be a rare occasion, a treat so that we can enjoy brioche bread. Oh my God. You took a criminally stupid question and you really did something with it. And I really, really appreciate that. Michael Harriet, who is the best rap duo of all time? And you cannot say outcast. If I can't say outcast, (laughs) ooh, that's a hard one. If you can't say outcast. Oh, Wow. Duo. So I got to go. You got to go with Run DMC. No, I got the answer right. See, (laughs) we think of the Roots as one guy, Black Thought. Right. But remember, the Roots were like their first five, six albums had Malik B. Right. And so I'm going to say the Roots, number one, with with Run DMC slightly behind me. I, I will accept that answer. Fantastic. Here's another, another question. But the answer is outcast. Outcast. We got, no, I get it. I totally, I totally get it. I looked through your, your tweets. Uh, that was uh, very much confirmed. That's why I threw that curveball at you. Uh, next question in the, again, in the non-black category, do you have a favorite song made by someone who is not black? Cannot be a black person. Favorite song made by someone who is not black. Oh God, I got a bunch of them. Um, I'm, that's going to be a hard choice. Is I think I'm going to go with "The Water Is Wide" by James Taylor. Wow. Oh gosh, that's. I think no, no. 
No, I think I'm going to change up. Benny and the Jets. Wow. It's going to be my final answer. Wow. A great answer and a real change there. I appreciate that. Uh, you've tweeted, Michael, about the concept of black famous and defined it as, quote, the gap between black stardom and white anonymity. I found that fascinating. You said, Can We Talk by Tevin Campbell, which is a one of my favorite songs. I grew up in the Tevin Campbell era. Uh, you label that as one of the most black famous songs ever. Do you have any candidates for the most black famous TV show and or movie? I'd also allow if you have a black famous athlete. I love the concept of black famous. Any other black famous TV shows or movies or athletes that stick out to you? Okay, probably the number one black famous movie is the five heartbeats every black person has seen the five heartbeats <laughs> and i don't even know if it is like even registered like that is in the pantheon of of black movies like top five and black famous tv shows i think everybody knows a different world but i don't think everybody has ever like most people have seen a different world and from different like from different eras like if you're not if you weren't alive in that era yes then you might not have seen a different world but here's another one here's a here's a curveball have you ever seen the temptations movie no there is that is like the tv version of the five part there, there is a temptations <laughs> movie that every black person has seen yes and so <laughs> Like, it's it's got a ubiquitous statement. Like, have you ever heard a black person say, ain't nobody came to see you, Otis? <laughs> that is from the Temptations movie. Right, right. And, every, like, it's such a ubiquitous right. movie that, that quote lives on. Uh, and, like, I don't even know if white people have ever seen the Temptations uh, movie. So funny. So good. Uh, <laughs> and a black famous athlete. Yeah. Let's see. Who is a black famous Athlete, oh, show enough. The uh, from the the karate master from the last dragon. I think he <laughs> is technically an athlete. Sure, show enough. Show enough. A great answer. Fantastic. Great answer so far. Uh, Michael Harriet passes or dunks? Which is your favorite? Passes. My, I'm a Magic Johnson fan. I grew up a Laker fan. Me too. So, I'm a Laker fan. So Magic passes. Johnson means everything to me. Do you have a favorite Magic Johnson pass? Do you have a, or, or anybody? Do you have a favorite pass from your or times watching in the NBA? My favorite pass, it is a Magic pass on the '92 Dream Team to Jordan. My Jordan. friend had like a VHS <laughs> uh, video uh, tape. Uh, this this it's hard to describe, but it is a great behind the back. Yep. Between the legs, no yep. no look past to Jordan. And it finishes with that classic Jordan one-handed, right-handed uh, yeah. dunk. It's perfect. I know exactly what you're talking about. I love that pass. Uh, Michael, Harry, I need you to name one thing that kicks ass. Oh, this is easy. Uh, the one thing that, kick, that kicks ass is jelly beans. Like, like jelly beans. <laughs> are really a perfect because there's like a hard candy and a soft candy right <laughs> and so yeah I, i'm gonna go with jelly beans <laughs> oh 
what a fantastic answer. I really appreciate the courage that it takes to say Jelly Beans kick ass. The last question is, I need you to name the greatest of all time. You're naming a goat. You are, you are picking of all the... I'm going to give you the pool here in a second of, of people you can pick from. You need to pick the greatest of all time. And what you're picking is the greatest of all time. What you're picking from is the best movie character athlete of all time. Which athlete, you know, that's not real in a movie, a character, can't, not a real person, not Michael Jordan in, in Space Jam because that Michael Jordan is a real basketball player. You have to pick the best athlete who was a movie character in any sport of all time. So I actually wrote an article about this years ago and I don't even, I can't even remember who I had at number one. Right? But, so, if we're going to go, we got to think about through baseball, basketball, football. You got to go with Team Wolf, right? (laughs) Right, because he was not really good when he was when yeah. he was not Team Wolf, but yeah. when he was Team Wolf, Very he could good. dunk. Yeah. He could pat, like he turned to flip and dunk. So <laughs> I think you gotta go with Team Wolf. <laughs> like it was only when the moon was full, so he was pretty erratic. But I think if you just let's see, you have to go into a discussion. This is one of my things. Oh, when we talk about goats, are we talking about them at their best, like yes. this athlete at their best, right? Or are you talking about like the long history? Because you know, if you catch him on a night with like a right. quarter moon, he might not. He might only put up ten points. He might put up single digits. But on a full moon night, I think we yeah. have to say Team Wolf is the best. It's a point well made. Of all time. A, a point well made. And also, for the record, he's but a teen at the at the time we saw him. He is going right, to, right, he's right. Going to eventually be a twenty year old. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, I think Team Wolf, like, you know, Ray Allen and he's got game, couldn't have even, like, he would have, he would have killed. He killed him. He would have actually a hundred percent. And then, you know, again, peak athleticism, 28 year old Wolf uh, would have just been an absolute um, a dynamo on the court. You, who's, who could have ever stopped him? I mean, fantastic job, Michael Harriet. That's the end of more important. You did fantastic. The next credential, it's the cosign. The floor is yours. The mic is yours. Michael Harriet does the Cleveland Summit belong in the first ballot Hall of Fame, and why? I think the Cleveland Summit belongs in the Sports Hall of Fame, and here's why, right? So when you think about sports impact on the world, mm. Right. We think about, you know, Kaepernick. You think about you think of uh, of one we miss was Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf mm-hmm. and his protest. Right. But I think all of those, one, didn't have the significant impact on both the sport and society. Right. Mm-hmm. Because. You're talking about the great, like, we, we hadn't even gotten into how this impacted the sport of boxing when the greatest boxer of all time had to just go away. Mm-hmm. So the impact on the sport itself, when you think about it as a sports moment, it's an actual, it had impact actually in the ring or on the field. Mm-hmm. And then you combine that with its impact on the culture 
um, on the how we think about race, how we think about solidarity, how we think about athletes and their responsibility to society. I think this is number one in all of those categories. Yep. Right. And so, and then you, again, when you just put it just under the sports thing, you think about the number of championships. Like if we after, say all of those people now, we take them. We got Willie Davis with several. We got uh, we got Bill Russell with fifteen. We got Lou Alcindor. We got Jim. Like all the the records and the championships and the gold medals in that room. There might not be. I'm not even talking about like a protest or just a summit or a game. There might not have ever been a gathering of that many championships in history. Yep. Like doing something together, yep. maybe like at the ESPYs, sitting in the audience right. or something like right. that. But like, just think about think about that. I think it belongs into the sports. Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, perfectly said. Uh, well done. The next credentials, the induction speech. That's when I kneel, get to decide whether this thing goes in. I mean, obviously, this thing is going to go in. Everything Michael Harriet just said. You know, listen, listen to him talk about this moment. I feel blessed to have had the opportunity to discuss and learn about this moment with you, from you. I appreciate it. I think the word greatness is different. It's like when they say the greatest of all time, they don't mean the best. That's greatness. Great and best are different words. And if you can make the argument, if you believe that Ali is the greatest of all time, and I think that he is, if you believe he's the greatest of all time and you think that's in some part or, in my opinion, large part due to him standing up for what he believed in then can you not make the argument that this moment could be the best sports moment in sports history? I think you could, and I think this is the first episode where you can actually have that conversation. This could be the greatest sports moment ever, representing the greatest athlete ever. Greatest. It's a different word. Michael Harriet, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, John Wooten, Sid Williams, Walter Beach, Bobby Mitchell, Jim Shorter, Curtis McClinton, Willie Davis, and Mr. Carl Stokes. Congratulations. The Cleveland Summit is 100% going into the first Battle Hall of Fame. Congratulations. I did it. I did it. Can I come to, like, do I need to get a tux? To come yes. to the ceremony, yes. or do I get a ticket? Gonna, yes, no. You listen. You you come right in. You are a uh, uh, an honored member of this hall yourself. Now, thank you so much for doing the show. Truly, sincerely, having your perspective, your wisdom, and then really listen, getting the opportunity to listen to you geek out a little bit about Bill Russell. It was thrilling and a ton of fun. Thank you so much for doing the show. What can you plug? How can people follow you? Uh, you can listen to Tryptomaniacs' new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get podcasts. Black AF History is out June 19th. And thegrio.com, you can read me almost every day. Michael Harriet, thank you so much again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it. That's the show. Michael Harriet, that's his name. Follow him. Support that man. 
were all we got. But maybe Michael more than ever before. His work, his writing, it's worth your time. It's worth your attention. Spread the word on him. Tell people that don't know him. It will be good for the world if you do it. Thanks again to Michael. My shout-out today goes to Mr. Henry Aaron Foley at Detroit Player. That's Player, P-L-A-I-R. He's a three-time Sports Emmy winning producer from the D, Detroit, Michigan, a proud Florida A&M alum, and a new listener and supporter of the First Ballot Podcast. He caught on last week from the It's the Real Guys. Listen to our Nate Jones episode. I think he moved on to Van Lathan. It really tickles me that someone like him, if I'm being honest, is diving into the backlog and telling his followers about us we're honored for the entire team. Thank you, sir, for listening. Credits. Jessica Seng produces the show. Rob Bob edits it. David Stramskis is our Balls Life producer. Follow Balls Life on all socials at Balls Life, Balls Life Podcast Network. Happy to be a part of it. One more person on the team to thank the new guy, Mr. EJ Cabasal. Thank you, sir, for your time so far. Looking forward to keep working with you. Rate and review us if you like the show. Tell a friend. The show keeps growing. We're all we got. Please come back next week for more First Ballot. I'll join y'all tomorrow. <laughs>